0: Today, we'll discuss a virtual tumor board case. Before we begin, we must include a disclaimer. All information presented during this podcast is made available solely for general information purposes. The ISLC does not warrant the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this information. The information is not intended as medical advice and should not be relied upon a substitution for consultations with qualified health or medical professionals. Any reliance placed on any information is strictly at your own risk. The ISLC disclaims all liability and responsibility arising from any reliance placed in such materials by you or any other person. In addition, the presentation by the ISLC or a third party of any materials or information regarding any specific opinion, product, process, service, or organization on this podcast do not constitute or imply the ISLC endorsement or recommendation of such opinion, product, process, service, or organization. All statements, opinions, and materials expressed or provided by third parties are solely based on their opinion and the responsibility of the person or entity making such statements or providing such materials. Such third-party opinions do not necessarily reflect any opinion of the ISLC. The ISLC shall not be responsible or reliable for the content or accuracy of any statements, opinions, or materials provided by any third parties. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom and your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. My name is Dr. Narjus Duma. I'm an assistant professor and thoracic oncologist at the University of Wisconsin. And your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Concert. I'm grateful today to have Dr. Erin Mansfield and Dr. Anna Nowak for joining me for one or two more boards. Dr. Mansfield is an Associate Professor of Oncology and Co-Director of Precision Cancer Therapeutics and the Cancer for Individualized Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Dr. Nowak is a Pro Vice Chancellor in Health and Medical Research at the University of Western Australia and a Medical Oncology at Sir Charles Grainer Hospital. Dr. Nowak and Mansfield, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Nadjus. Uh, it's uh, lovely to be here and to have the opportunity to talk about mesothelioma for uh, a while.
2: Also, thank you for the invitation. It's nice to connect with you and Dr. Nowak again.
0: So Dr. Mansfield, Dr. Nowak and I are going to refer to each other by first name. This is a informal conversation that we want to share their knowledge with you about how to treat case of mesothelioma. So I'm going to go ahead with the case. Today in our virtual tumor board, we are going to discuss an unresectable mesothelioma with chest wall invasion and pleural effusion. So this is a 60-year-old man with a 30-pack year history, presents to the local ER with worsening shortness of breath, at rest, and with assertion. And the ER... A checksus ray shows a large right pleural effusion. The patient is admitted for further evaluation. We a chest CT showing this right pleural thickening. We enlarged mediastinal lymph nodes and right chest wall invasion. Thoracentesis reveals a serosanguinous fluid. 1.1 liters are removed We improvement of the patient respiratory symptoms. Cytology is negative from the pleural fluid. Then a thoracoscopy is done to obtain some pleural biopsies. The pathology reveals a malignant pleural mesothelioma, epithelioid subtype. A subsequent PET scan show extensive FDG avid pleural thickening in the right hemithorax, associated with the chest wall invasion and significant lymph node involvement. In addition, this patient has a history of diabetes, hypertension, COPD via ECOG performance status of one. Understanding that not all clinical information is present in this very short case, we would love to discuss uh, with Aaron and Anna, how would be your first evaluation for a patient like this one? We are going to start with Aaron.
2: Okay. So from what you shared with me, this is a 68-year-old male uh, biopsy-proven epithelioid mesothelioma and a PET-CT showing this uh, pleural thickening on the right side and significant lymph node involvement. When we take a case or a a new patient comes in, first we often discuss with our surgeons and radiation oncologists whether either of those modalities are reasonable uh, to pursue. Here, I think we are assuming uh, lymph nodes are involved. I I don't know which ones per se, but knowing that there's chest wall invasion and significant lymph node involvement, it is less likely that we would be pursuing a surgical intervention or any radiation. When there's less extensive disease, though, uh, we do consider a variety of multimodality protocols that we have where we incorporate uh, systemic therapy and then surgery or the reverse order or even uh, radiation and then surgery. So it it really depends on the extent of disease, but all all the features you've presented here are suggesting to me that uh, this may be too um, extensive for those modalities uh, without having actual imaging. So we would be thinking along the lines of uh, systemic therapy for this patient. It sounds like there's a few comorbidities so I don't know how this patient's uh, kidney function is with the history of diabetes and hypertension, but there don't seem to be any um, autoimmune conditions uh, to be concerned with. So uh, we we would be giving consideration to our chemotherapies or the newly approved immunotherapies from what, what I understand of the case so far.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, you know, it's limited, the information. I'm going to throw out that the Kidney function is normal. Now that you suggested that, Anna, what will your first initial evaluation for a patient like this?
1: Uh, yes, well, I was surprised to see that the cytology was negative in a patient with epithelioid mesothelioma, but I would always support obtaining biopsies anyway, and that's been done. Obviously, Aaron has covered quite a bit of the thought process there, but I would add that I'd want to evaluate his respiratory function and possibly refer him to a colleague to optimise treatment of his COPD, because he's likely to have uh, low pulmonary reserve. And as part part of managing his pulmonary reserve, I'd be wanting to control his pleural effusion. I would... Like to see his effusion drain to dryness if there's still uh, much left after 1.1 litres has been removed. And at our institution, he might be eligible for the AMPLE 3 study, which is comparing VAT's pleuridesis to indwelling pleural catheter for control of pleural effusion. I would also want to pay some attention to his analgesia because he does have chest wall invasions. So, quite commonly, people come to me without good analgesia uh, and uh, really taking an aggressive palliative approach to managing analgesia is important. I would be discussing his asbestos exposure to understand whether he needed to be referred for consideration of legal compensation and understanding his family history to see if we needed to consider screening for BAP1 syndrome. Uh, And at our site, we also have next generation sequencing as part of a research. Research program. So I'd probably consent into that also during the workup.
0: I think this is very important that, you know, we not only talk to the patient about the asbestos exposure, but also to the family. So thank you, Annie, for bringing that up. I think for the people that are listening, there's something that we may forget, you know, you're seeing a new patient, we're all overwhelmed with the diagnosis. And one question to the two of you is for this patient that's older than 68, do you get a geriatric assessment in your institution for patients like this? I will start with Anna.
1: Sure. We do have a geriatric a geriatrician with an interest in oncology, so not a geriatric oncologist but an oncological geriatrician I guess. And I would routinely refer patients over 75 to see my colleague. I wouldn't necessarily refer a 68-year-old because uh, that actually doesn't, uh, somebody of that age doesn't qualify for any of the geriatric interventions in Australia.
0: And for you, Erin, will you work with a geriatric assessment? We know the chronologic age. Is not determined, the, the most important is the performance status and comorbidities, but more and more people are getting these assessments for newly diagnosed patients.
2: Yeah, and at our institution, I think it's up to the primary oncologist to do those assessments. Uh, There is support if we want to order it. Our thoracic group does have a dedicated pharmacist in the workroom with us. So that's been a a very nice resource to help with issues of polypharmacy and some of those other issues that uh, come up in the elderly population. But again, it's uh, upon the practicing oncologist to uh, engage those other resources or perform them themselves.
0: But that that's a very good point. And now moving forward with the case. So we know the patient has a performance status of one. This is an epithelial subtype, uh, malignant pleural mesothelioma with chest wall invasion. What will be your first line therapy? And I will start with Anna for this patient.
1: Yes, well, with epithelioid disease, at the moment I would be considering him for the Dreamer study, and that is randomizing patients to cisplatin, and Pematrix said, with or without Divalimab in a two to one uh, randomization ratio. And it's open around Australia and will be open very soon at sites in the US as well. Uh, I think, uh, from what I know of his comorbidities, he would most likely be eligible. Uh, but of course, there may be other issues such as hearing loss, uh, even if his renal function is normal, which would make him ineligible. If he wasn't a clinical trial candidate, then I would see if I could obtain epilimumab and nivolumab, because if he's not a clinical trial candidate in the first line, he probably won't be a clinical trial candidate in the second line. So that might be my only opportunity to obtain a combination immunotherapy for him. And of course, if that was not available, I'd be looking at probably carboplatin and Pemetrexed uh, in order to be able to adjust
2: for his renal function.
0: And Erin, what will your first line, line therapy be for this patient?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, our thought process is very similar to what Anna laid out there. Uh, we, we give consideration a, a platinum agent with pemetrexid. I would say here in the U.S., uh, we can get coverage for bevacizumab, so sometimes we would consider that just knowing this patient has hypertension, there there may be issues with that drug. And as Anna mentioned, we recently received approval for ipilimumab and nivolumab. So based on the actual labs and comorbidities uh, give consideration of one of those two regimens. Of course, we always screen for clinical trials and the Dreamer study is not yet open in the United States, but it, it's one that is Actively in process or, or actively being developed and activating very soon. So uh, I, I think we're all excited about the prospects of chemoimmuno for uh, epithelioid uh, subsets of disease. But a platinum doublet with or without bevacizumab or the uh, cpla 4 PD1 inhibitor combination is um, are, are the two main options we, we consider.
0: And the both of you already talk a little bit about these data and. You know, there's recent data about the combination of ipilimumab plus nivolumab. This was presented at the World Long Presidential Symposium in August of 2020. This is a randomized, open-label trial that required like enroll 605 patients. We previously treated unresectable malignant pleural At the time of the analysis, there was with the dual immunotherapy. the median survival was 18.1 months while for patients that underwent chemotherapy was 14.1 months. How these data change your practice, Erin?
2: Right. So first, this was a large randomized study and it was positive and it received in the United States FDA approval just a few months ago. So uh, this study is practice changing in ways. When you look at the subsets, the uh, benefit was much more marked for the non-epithelioid group where we, we finally seen uh, that this group, w- which typically has a worse outcome, do uh, essentially as well or almost as well as the epithelioid group uh, w- with getting uh, immunotherapy. And, and that's because chemotherapy performs so poorly on average for sarcomatoid disease. Uh, so in that Uh, subset, it is the clear first choice to me, as long as there's no contraindication to immunotherapy. And then for the epithelioid subset, I think you need to have a conversation about the different options you have available or other trial opportunities. But uh, for me, this is something we've adopted in our practice and we are offering to patients.
0: And Anna, what is your experience with this new data and were your thoughts particularly unique to your
1: practice? Uh, Yes, look, I agree with what Aaron said. The results in the Checkmate 743 study for biphasic and sarcomatoid disease in particular were uh, extraordinary and an absolute game changer for people in this subset. So if at all possible, I offer that and uh, it's not yet on our pharmaceutical benefits scheme in Australia, uh, but there are other ways that we can get ipilimumab and nivolumab uh, if we need to, including self-funding for patients who have received compensation. So, uh, and and as Aaron said, uh, with epithelioid disease, the improvement in overall survival was was really very modest and uh, for that pre-planned subset analysis was not statistically significant. So I remain very comfortable with combination platinum-based chemotherapy as a control arm and as a treatment option for patients with epithelioid disease. And in fact, particularly for somebody like uh, our patient under discussion, uh, for this man, I imagine that uh, rapid progression would probably be very detrimental to his performance status and his symptoms. And in fact, progression-free survival was, uh, had quite a rapid fall off in the Checkmate 743 study uh, for the combination immunotherapy arm. So, we really need to understand how to select our patients as best we can. At the moment, PDL1 is is not an improvement. pdl one expression on tumors is not an improvement over a biphasic and sarcomatoid disease uh, in order to make that decision. So I, I would actually be concerned that if his disease was not responsive to dual immunotherapy, he could progress really quite rapidly and deteriorate as the clinical trial data suggests.
0: So to summarize, it was like platinum still has a role in this disease but some patients may be a better candidate for the dual immunotherapy with the risk of going and trying to guess the future, which is very hard. Do you think either of you, there will be a role for a patient like the one we're discussing to get a four drug regimen, and which is a combination of platinum-based therapy plus ipilimumab and nivolumab. And I will start with Aaron. Uh, just get your crystal ball and let us know what do you think if it is uh, we have a role for the treatment of patients like this
2: so just remind me what the disclosure says at the beginning of the podcast Um, (laughs) the disclosure is
0: that i'm just kidding kidding. i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs)
2: well i don't want to get Mm -hmm. into too much hot water um but that that is a concept i've proposed uh, to BMS and to Genentech with the Tzo and a VEGF inhibitor, uh, just different quadruplet therapies. But, but right now for mesothelioma, we have no evidence. I have done something like this for one patient who had a pericardial mesothelioma and um, significant cardiac dysfunction from disease. And I was worried that if it didn't respond to chemo or immuno, we wouldn't have a second chance for therapy uh, to switch uh, just given how uh, this patient presented in extremis we were able to uh, attain coverage for that patient for a quadruplet but uh, I, I am so far outside the lines with this case uh, but it, it was done for d- just the uh, extreme situation they presented in and so far cardiac function is improving and the patient's doing better but it's hard for me to say which of the therapies had done that. But we're, uh, for better or worse, doing something similar to that 9LA regimen and non-small cell lung cancer. And um, Anna may scold me for this approach. I, I know I'm outside the lines, but I, I just didn't have um, great comfort with using uh single agent chemo or immuno uh, in that case. But again, we, we don't have great data for implementing a quadruplet that the, in terms of combinations the best data we have are, I mean, you're speaking with the expert Anna there with um, the chemo immuno triplet combination. And I, I think the MISO community is excited to run these studies and get the data to demonstrate uh, w- whether we should be adopting this triplet or not.
0: And thank you for sharing and you know your experience and also the the answer. I think it was a little bit tricky for me to ask this, but is that always the question, right? We're in lung cancer, we're moving and learning from the myeloma teams and the more we keep adding more and more drugs to regimens, but I would really like to hear Anna's prediction of the future for a potential combination in a patient like this.
1: Uh, Look, I think it's a great clinical trial question and I would be surprised if somebody uh, other than Aaron isn't already talking to companies that... Make these drugs. So, I would be very confident that we will see a clinical trial asking this question uh, in the fairly near future. Uh, I guess the difficult tool will be what is the control arm and should they wait until we've got combination chemoimmunotherapy with an anti PD1 or PDL1 agent first and have. Confirmed whether that is an effective uh, advance over combination chemotherapy, or will people go straight on to uh, combine combination? Uh, a, a quadruplet combination and perhaps compare it with um, dual i o. And uh, just thinking aloud here as i as I discuss this, that's actually probably the sensible trial design would be epinevo uh, versus epinevo plus chemotherapy. What do you think, Aaron, is that is that our trial
2: design? I like it for what it's worth.
1: Well, I
0: we will be happy that maybe the podcast is the beginning of this trial that the two of you are going to design. And then we can come back several years later and say, do you remember in February of 2021? This is how it started. So now going back to the case and less predictions. Now we, we talk about this malignant uh, pleural mesothelioma, but now we're going to do a little twist. What if this patient has a biphasic or a sarcomatoid histology? Will that change your your original treatment plan? Uh, We will start with Anna. Uh,
1: Yes, I think as discussed before, I would move heaven and earth to try to get a combination ipilimumab and nivolumab for this person.
0: Thank you. So it sounds like, you know, for this type type of patients, you know, we really are moving forward with this uh, new combination. And Erin, how do we change your perception or your next steps and in a patient with sarcomatoid histology
2: Yeah. so like anna said i i truly believe the uh, ipilimumab nivolumab combination is a game changer especially for the subset of disease and Here, uh, the few patients I've seen with that subtype since the approval, uh, we've been able to get that regimen form, uh, just given the FDA label. So it it hasn't been so hard in the United States to to get that for those who you think are appropriate for it. I, I might just add In terms of our multidisciplinary care, that uh, patients uh, who knowingly have biphasic disease or sarcomatoid disease at diagnosis um, typically are not candidates for surgical interventions. So uh, usually we're just going down a systemic therapy only route, unless there's a role for palliative radiation to a, a painful lesion or something that way.
0: Okay, thank you. Part of the Tumor Board, we're also trying to learn the differences in in, in practice across the world. ISLC is a global organization. So, Anna, in your practice in Australia, what do you think are some of the unique regional practices in cases like the one that we're discussing?
1: Uh, Yes, for unresectable mesothelioma, um, I, I think we'd find that, in fact, our practice is really quite well aligned with the global practice. Uh, to, I guess, be a little more specific about what we might do, uh, I work with a very an active, research active uh, plural team. And so a lot of the patients come to me on a plural intervention trial already, which um, can, can pose some challenges. Uh, so at the moment, the ample 3 study is looking at Pleuridesis versus indwelling pleural catheter. I almost always have uh, plenty of clinical trials open uh, and our patients are actually extremely comfortable with clinical trials and They do start with my colleague in the plural clinic and then they come to me. By the time they come to me, they know all about what a clinical trial is. So, that I guess is a a regional practice that's uh, perhaps also around what people in Australia are willing to do for medical research. Uh, I certainly also use radiotherapy um, for palliative management of painful chest wall lesions. And for example, this gentleman who had associated chest wall invasion, uh, I may consider some radiotherapy to the area of chest wall invasion alongside or or before or after his systemic therapy uh, as well. But, look, uh, that's probably not a particularly unique regional practice either. The main difference would be that we really uh, don't use a lot of surgery and will often uh, do watchful waiting for people with early mesothelioma. And in fact, I have patients who can go five years with no treatment and they have a, a, a three monthly or four monthly CT scan. And sometimes the disease is extremely indolent. It's obviously the exception rather than the rule, uh, but it certainly can happen.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that, I so It's very interesting about the Plural Clinic and how patients are introduced to clinical trials so early. And that, in part, we help with the enrollment into clinical trials and, you know, how they understand what are the benefits of participating in a clinical trial. I'm going to ask the same question to Erin. We are in the same country, but different institutions. I, I, I did train at Mayo Clinic. So, Erin, where do you think are some of the unique practices at your institution when treating patients with uh, malignant pleural
2: Right, so i I think i I'm sort of cheating here because I uh, just so you know, and uh, Nargis, I don't think you knew this before the podcast, but I spent a month in Perth uh, with Anna and got to see how she practiced. And I I was relieved to see that uh, I practiced very similarly. Uh, So I I think from a systemic therapy standpoint um, and what we do, was very similar overall. And that was just a really fun experience seeing someone like Anna practice and how she does things and uh, quite an experience for me. Um, I, I think our institutions just have some different flavors for what it's worth. We do have a large surgical team here, and I think a few more of our patients uh, go to surgery. Uh, we are aggressive with staging disease, though, and when we find that disease has gone to lymph nodes or uh, studied the peritoneum, our, our surgeons are not going to operate. So what we're aggressive with staging, but then we rule out a lot of patients from surgery, just knowing how extensive their disease is. Uh, so th- that's one of the major differences. Also the clinical trials that are open can be uh, different at in institutions. But I, I think we both have really strong multidisciplinary teams that uh, all chip into the management of, of these patients. and. Um, given, I I guess at the time when I visited, we really had one approved therapy of a platinum with pemetrexid. Um, Maybe that was the reason for how similar um, we were with um, our recommendations, and maybe that's changing now, but I I think overall with the uh, palliation and uh, other features of the disease, our, our practices were similar.
0: And and I find it fascinating that you went and visited Anna in Australia because we can learn so much from each other. Uh, just being in this podcast, I have learned the differences in, uh in practices, and also how you can take from other groups to to treat a very challenging disease, not only mesothelioma but thoracic malignancies in general. So, around along those lines, we know they're limited number of cases and limited number of cases of methotelioma that get to our institutions. And one of the challenges can be enrollment in clinical trials. So Aaron, does your institution has a unique pattern of how to screen patients for clinical trials, how to make sure they are given the opportunity to consider participating in a trial?
2: Yeah. So there's a few things we do to try to screen patients and I think Anna mentioned there, there can be some issues when patients are diagnosed with different discipline and maybe they have a vascular that can affect sometimes trial eligibility on the medical oncology side or some of the multidisciplinary care when we have uh, multimodality trials uh, that are active. But on my end, uh, we have a few things. One, we do have an AI program so that when you come into clinic a- a- as a physician and you're looking at your patients um, and your patients are roomed you get a list of trials that they're potentially eligible for so and, and we try to keep that system up to date so as trials open or close uh, your colleague who might be seeing a patient knows that, that there is an option to consider. Now, um, sometimes they may have had a scan right before they've seen you and they may or may not be eligible because of just some recent change, but the, the system works with what's available to try to recommend uh, of the portfolio of cl- clinical trials, not just for mesothelioma, but lung cancer and other tumors, what whether there might be an option for your patient. Uh, the other thing uh, that I do since I have... Uh, special interest with a mesothelioma within the group here, I get a weekly report uh, Friday afternoon of everyone who's scheduled to see us the following week with mesothelioma. So I could see if a new consult is coming in on Monday or Tuesday, and I can prepare a colleague to know that, um, hey, this patient's coming in, they have this subset of disease, uh, this trial is open if it's um, if you think they're a candidate. So those are two approaches I've used to try to optimize um, patient identification and trial enrollment.
0: Well, thank you for sharing with that. We are now heading back and uh, moving forward in time with the case. So we have a patient with pleural methisotelioma. He was treated with first-line therapy. He Unfortunately, had disease progression at eight months. We reaccumulated inf- effusions. This, that's how he presented in the ER. His performance status remains at one. So and we're gonna see that he was treated with platinum-based therapy. So Anna, what we your next line of therapy after this patient progressed in platinum-based therapy after eight months of diagnosis.
1: Okay, so I. Uh- although I probably would have controlled his pleural effusion before now uh, I think that given that second line and subsequent therapy is less likely to be effective in mesothelioma in any patient I would take this opportunity to more definitively control his pleural effusion whether that's with an indwelling pleural catheter or tau pleuridesis. I would certainly be offering him a next line of therapy and uh, I'm going to go on about clinical trials again but uh, I would offer him a clinical trial. At the moment, I've got a a dual immunotherapy plus or minus a vaccine uh, trial uh, available for patients with mesothelioma. So that's a great way to get dual immunotherapy for people who haven't had it as first line. Uh, alternatively, if he's not a clinical trial patient, uh, I think we do now have data to say that um, nivolumab uh, or ipilimumab and nivolumab are reasonable uh, strategies in the second line, and uh, particularly nivolumab with the um, confirmed study recently reported. If that wasn't available to him, then we do have some uh, modestly effective. Sorry, I'll I'll wind back from that a little. We do have some used chemotherapies, uh, single-agent vinerolban or single-agent gemcitabine, for which there is reasonable circumstantial evidence that they can provide uh, some modest responses in patients and uh, certainly some equivalents of vinerolban with uh, pembrolizumab in uh, the PROMIS clinical trial.
0: Thank you so much. I think second line therapy is still a challenge, you know, try to find out which one is the best one. So, Erin, for you, what would be the next step for this patient as, after he progressed, had disease progression on platinum based therapy?
2: Yeah, I, I think Anna summarized the uh, landscape really well. For a while, uh, I'll, I'll just say it's sort of changed over the last few years where. The keynote study uh, with pembrolizumab, it was non-randomized, but it was encouraging uh, for benefit. And I think it received a lot of use here uh, following those data, uh, however, uh, a study from Europe uh, didn't show benefit with pembrolizumab. Yet uh, with nivolumab, we just did see benefit. Um, uh, Dean Fennell presented those data, and then we also had the um, uh, French data for nevo So I, I similar to Anna, uh, given that this patient uh, started with platinum therapy, I would be considering immunotherapy. Just knowing, it as sh- I think she was very nice to Gemcitabine and. Ben- Rel well, being calling them <laughs> modest <laughs> in terms of their activity. <laughs> and um, I, I, I would much strongly prefer immunotherapy in, in this setting with ipinevo or uh, nevo, uh, g- given, again, the two studies I, I, I mentioned. W- with the newer updates, I, I think those are the ones in play for patients who had prior um, platinum therapy. And again, uh, we, we use gemcitabine and venorelbine too, uh, but um, it's <laughs> uh, the modest is a kind word for the degree of benefit with those drugs.
0: I, I think gemcitabine um, is often uh, put in the modest category or below after several lines of therapy. <laughs> it's a drug that is always there, I, I guess. So we also want to learn about tumor boards in your different institutions. So far, we have learned tumor boards are very early in the morning, or oh, they can be late at night. Um, and I think it's trying to accommodate the multidisciplinary team. So I'm going to start with Anna. How is the tumor board at your institution works? When do you meet? Who is there? Are all cases presented there?
1: So we have a Friday morning Thoracic tumor Board meeting. Uh, It's not that early. It's 7.45. And uh, really the focus is on lung cancer more than mesothelioma or mesothelioma cases are presented. Uh, We maybe have uh, one uh, a week, uh, and uh, that's really dwarfed by the presentation of the lung cancer patients. It is a surgically focused meeting. So some of the key goals are in staging those patients and engaging our surgical colleagues for for non-small cell lung cancer. So, uh, I also tend to get my referrals from uh, outside of the tumor, of the institutional tumor board. So, not all my patients will necessarily uh, go through the tumor board uh, at the time of diagnosis. But uh, when they have next generation sequencing, we have a molecular tumor board. And that is at the moment more a research uh, oriented activity, uh, but it also provides an opportunity to identify when a, uh, patients may be eligible for phase one clinical trials, for example, uh, on the basis of any uh, specific changes, although uh, they are not common in mesothelioma and uh, patients would more likely go to a, uh, a non-specific phase one.
0: Thank you so much, Anna. And Erin, how, how the tumor work was at Mayo?
2: So we have uh, daily tumor boards, and there's a different format. Uh, On Monday morning, uh, unfortunately, at 7 a.m., we have one for our extended Mayo Clinic network, uh, which does include some international sites. So with that one, we may get external cases. And then there's usually, now it's on Zoom, uh, given the pandemic, but 20 or so of us uh, with, with a mix of radiology, interventional radiology, thoracic surgery, pulmonary medicine, uh, medical oncology, and so on, and uh, radiation oncology too. And we'll review those cases. And I think similar to the flavor Anna was sharing, uh, we're trying to uh, confirm the stage of disease. We discuss a lot of stage three non-small cell lung cancer uh, in that tumor board or multifocal disease and the optimal management of it. But we do try to present every uh, patient with mesothelioma there just uh, to have... A multidisciplinary opinion as to how to proceed. We also have a sort of a quick uh, tumor boards at 1pm the rest of the week, which is completely internal, but we have a radiologist, pulmonary medicine, thoracic surgery, radonc and medonc. And the goal of that is to When someone's coming in and going through a workup, sometimes we uh, get scans and the situation changes. So it's a way for us to just put our heads together quickly every day and say, hey, this changed. Um, Should they be seeing you or should we be uh, getting this next test to uh, expedite their care? So it's a, a way of just facilitating a complex, multidisciplinary care and getting a patient on a, another discipline's calendar uh, quickly, if needed, based on the findings, or or to get that quick opinion as to uh, what what to do in some uh, scenarios.
0: And thank you for sharing that with me. I do have to say, when I was a fellow Mayo, running to the tumor board on Monday at seven a.m. was a was a common thing. And in the winter, it was a thing that you know it was a little bit more challenging. Our tumor boards here are Friday noon at lunch. So it is great to learn from all of you how things work uh, at your respective institutions. So as we discuss this case of mesothelioma, we would also would like to ask the both of you, what do you think is very inciting down the pipeline for the treatment of a challenging disease? I will start with Anna.
1: Well, look, we've already discussed the uh, extension of combination chemo immunotherapy to, for example, four drug regimens. So that's something that uh, I would like to see. But some of the more novel things that are happening at the moment are some advanced radiotherapy techniques and the technology, which uh, has really accelerated over the last 10 years and uh, enabled lung sparing and combination therapy. So many of those are in single centres at the moment, but uh, really quite exciting. And, of course, CAR T cells are uh, another um, immunotherapy strategy uh, that is looking very interesting from the outside, particularly in combination with um, other agents. So those two things are uh, where I'm putting my money on for perhaps the the, the next really new thing. Thank you. I, I think certainly CAR T
0: cells are quite incited in many settings. So Aaron, what do you think is very inciting down the pipeline?
2: Well, I, I guess I came into... Um the the mesothelioma group uh, beating the immunotherapy bandwagon. So I am really, or, or drama, I'm sorry, but I'm really excited to see it move to the point where we now have regulatory approvals and have definitively proven where immunotherapy can work. I'm hopeful that we'll get better at predicting who benefits from them um, and who doesn't and identifying ways to overcome those gaps, um, be it with CAR T's or uh, other approaches. But I do hope our genomic profiling gets incorporated as we understand what subsets of patients, again, may or may not benefit, uh, given the toxicities with these drugs. I also, I also hope we get better, and that this goes beyond mesothelioma at selecting uh, which patients not to treat. Um, if there, if we could predict with near certainty um, that, uh, an adverse event from these immunotherapies uh, that would be severe, um, that that may not be achieved, but I'm hopeful there's things that may get us a little closer, at least, to doing that. I I do think we need to move beyond immunotherapy itself. I I don't think it's the uh, fix for everyone and it doesn't last forever, clearly. So I don't know if CAR-T's will completely get us there, but I I think the newer constructs are overcoming some of the limitations of the initial ones. But at least compared to when I started practice, there's just been a... I, I think an explosion of research, uh, but not just academic, but also pharmaceutical companies that are interested in this space. And that, that's been really encouraging to see.
0: Thank you for sharing that with us. I think something also about the numbers of methotelioma compared to non small cell uh, lung cancers that they're lower. So many physicians in the community don't treat as many as the two of you treat. And we are very thankful that we can get to learn from your experience. As we're wrapping up the podcast, we would like to ask each of you for one pair of wisdom about treating unresectable malignant pleural mesothelioma. So I will start with Aaron. What is that one pair of wisdom you want to share with trainees and also with physicians and other healthcare providers that are listening to the podcast? Um,
2: just one? <laughs> well, you can go up to three. <laughs> no, uh, I'll... I'll um... I'll just say, listen to your patient. Uh, They will uh, guide you uh, uh, to what their needs are, uh, be it clinical, be it spiritual, be it uh, palliative. Uh, Just um, take the time to listen to what they need and that'll help you with your uh, recommendations. So uh, I'll keep it short at that.
0: And what about you, Anna?
1: Oh, he learned so much when he came to Perth, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what I was going to say uh, is ask about symptoms at every consultation and be sure to actively manage pain cough weight loss night sweats uh, these can be and, and, and fatigue these can be huge issues for our patients and it's important that we don't get so caught up in the clinical trial or the treatment that we forget to, as Aaron just said, listen to our patients and address their most important symptomatic concerns. Along with that, considering palliative care input as well. uh, In Australia, we're fortunate that we can have palliative care input alongside oncological care uh, if required.
0: Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate the holistic approach of how both of you see patients with malignant pleuromyceteleoma. We are wrapping up, but we'd like to thank you for discussing this case with us. Also, we'd like to thank the people listening and stay tuned for more Tumor Board series. Thank you, Dr. Aaron Mansfield and Dr. Anna Nowak for making the time of speaking with us today.
2: Thank you, Nargis. (laughs)
0: Thank you, Najist. It's
1: been a great pleasure.
0: Well, everyone, this is another episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope you tune in the first and the third Monday of every month. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it. And we're happy that you took the time to hear this tumor board during your commute, at home, when you keep cooking or cleaning. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.